Welcome, welcome, good people. You are now listening to the A to Knee podcast. I am Knee, your humble and gracious host for however long these proceedings decide to go on for. I've been meaning to start this podcast for a while. I'm not quite sure as of yet how frequently I'll be coming to you with content. So it might be once a week, it might be once every two weeks, it might be just whenever I feel motivated to record an episode. So yeah, it just depends. I think it will really depend on how much engagement I get and how how frequently I can get people to guest on my pod. This first episode will be a get to know you episode so listeners can get to grips with who I am and how I've come to think the way I think. My main goal for this podcast is to create a space that centers blackness, to be able to share uh, the thoughts, opinions and feelings and experiences of different types of black folk. A space for long form discussions that aren't, you know, ruined by people's egos or people feeling over familiar or people misinterpreting what what is meant because there's a lack of tone. I want to again open the floor to people that are much more well-versed than I am in different topics, people of different ethnic identities, different sexual identities and orientations, religious backgrounds, educational backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds. I really want to open up uh, the floor for discussions that are meant to enlighten, discussions that are accessible, discussions that will hopefully continue after the podcast finishes okay let's take it back to the very beginning i was born on the 6th of april 1994 the only child of two ghanaian immigrants my dad is a senpega and my mum is an anlo ewe i was born and raised in a small town called morden it's not too far from Mitcham. It's in the middle between Wimbledon and Croydon. It's the very edge of southwest London, the last stop on the southbound Northern Line. I went to nursery next to my mother's workplace. She worked at the Royal Marsden in Belmont, so that's where I went to nursery. I went to primary school in a town called Sutton, so it's like the first town that you enter when you're coming out of London going towards Surrey. I went to a school called All Saints Ben Hilton Primary School. I was one of maybe four or five black kids in our class, I think. If I remember correctly, there was me, a Ghanaian, um, a Nigerian boy, a Nigerian girl. And then there were, at the start, there were three mixed race girls. All three of them, I believe, were half black West Indian and, and then half white. Two of them ended up leaving the school, that moving to, moving to different areas in the UK. So they left the school in year three. And then it was me, one Nigerian guy, one Nigerian girl, and then one mixed race girl. None of us were particularly close. We didn't form a bond of any kind. That None of them are my friends right now. We just sort of just existed around each other. I don't really have any particular reason why. I don't know why we never connected. I just guess we were all just kind of different. So the school was predominantly white. Um, the area itself was predominantly white. I would say as a result of that, I didn't have the best relationship with my blackness um, growing up. I think in some ways I maybe dissociated myself from it. You know, that might kind of sound weird to some people, but I think when you really look into it, quite a few first generation diasporans might have a similar experience in the way that you are made to live out several identities at the same time. So when I look at myself, obviously I'm black British, 
I'm Ghanaian, I'm uh, Ga, I'm Ewe. So these things obviously fit together because I'm only one person. But at the same time, the expectations from each one don't necessarily always correlate. They're not to say they go against each other, but people don't see the validity of each one in every single situation you're in. Sometimes one will take precedent over the other and other times one might be completely forgotten. You know, it's like this very weird thing and it depends on who you're speaking to and where you are. I think particularly because Black British is a relatively new concept that hasn't been fully birthed into a, a full existence outside of just being a label. Um, so it's kind of difficult to sort of look at all the moving parts within Black British, right? So if we were to speak about expectations of Black Britishness, I personally, people might disagree with me, but I think that a lot of those leanings and expectations are tied to West Indian culture because, uh, you know, West Indians were the first Black group here to settle here en masse and therefore their customs uh, and their sensibilities, uh, their tastes, language had a big influence on the culture because they were the first ones here. So therefore, a lot of the expectations and actions of, of that people would sort of look at and think of are black Britishness come from that those roots. Therefore, where, where you're, a, you're an African kid and you're looking at certain things or expected to understand certain things and see certain things, uh, you might not resonate with those things and you might be a bit removed from that because obviously you're not from that culture that um, obviously things are shifting now, you know, obviously because we're we're here together in, in, in relatively equal numbers um, and we're sort of seeing the shift. But I, I'm not saying I'm not but um, I'm not necessarily seeing a combination. It's it seems more like a shift, like things were very West Indian and now they're shifting more to being very west african or, or very um nigerian if you want to put a, like a to, to pinpoint it um in terms of the slang people are using and uh things that uh, the the music people like and uh those kind of things so i think that's sort of the the limbo you find yourself in you know like if if you even if you take your house take your household for example uh what goes on inside your house would be very strange for outsiders to see right like you know you might have a a, a biscuit tin but it's full of sewing equipment. <laughs> you might have uh, an ice cream tub, but it's full of stew or, you know, or something else. Uh, and obviously these things are very normal to you. Your, your parents might call you a different name than the name you're known in school, on your school register. Um, your parents are going to speak to you in their native tongues, right? The sensibilities, uh, the taste, the culture of your house, within your household, the rules within your household are birthed by the, your parents' home nation, right? And then when you go outside, are those gonna do those things necessarily match the outside? No, not really. So there is this duality that you sort of get used to as a, uh, as a particularly as I think as a, as a, as a first gen kid because your your parents are still very much trying to instill uh, a sense of identity within you that you don't have direct access to because you live here in this you know this cold little city called London. Like you you live here, so you don't really have the ability to fully immerse yourself in what it means to be. Uh, Ga or Ewe or Yoruba or you know Ibo or, or, or whichever um, ethnic group you may come from back home from whichever nation your ability to tap into that is limited because you have maybe you have your, your parents some uncles and aunties uh, hopefully you'll find some friends from the same background here but it's still limited because you're not living in that space breathing that space breathing that culture taking it in first hand and for me it's interesting because like I think about how I'm perceived within my family and 
how I'm, how I'm perceived when I travel back to Ghana and things like that. And it's it's interesting to see because like I'll have, there was, um, so I remember uh, I went to bury my maternal grandmother in 2015 and as, um, and, and some of, some of my dad's family came uh, to represent him because he couldn't travel at the time. And, um, it was um one of my aunties um uh my dad's cousin i believe um and she and she came up to me and started speaking to me in ga um expecting me to speak fluent ga and it's interesting because she's known me from because she, she lives she um she she spends time here and in ghana so she lives here and we have we have a a, a relationship where we know we she she knows me like she knows me she's not, she's not like an auntie where she hasn't seen me at all um in a 20 year span it's it's not not like that but she was speaking to me in Ghana and I, I I my Ga is you know at best it's a greeting and a little bit of a conversation it's not fluent at all and she should know this because she knows me but she said to me oh don't you and I and I, and I explained in that moment I explained to her like auntie no I, I don't I'm not fluent in Ga da, 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 da. and she's like oh you are lost and I'm like it's interesting that like there's an onus put on me to have to have fully taken on this this identity which wouldn't necessarily serve me in the UK like when I'm here other than conversing with my family gar isn't something in my everyday experience isn't it's not something that's thrown at me every day you know it's not something that's um that that I would be able to pick up easily because it's so readily available um and then when I look at myself and compare to my other cousins like they're all quite a bit older than me. My my parents uh, had, had me late. So when I look at my cousins, they're a good, you know, 20, 30 years older than me. Um, and a lot of, they were, they all born and raised in Ghana, grew up in Ghana. So there wasn't that, um, so there wasn't that difficulty in terms of passing the culture down, right? But with me in particular, um, being younger and, uh, you know, you know, living in a predominantly white area, not necessarily going to spaces where I'm going to pick up Gar. So, you know, we a lot of my dad's friends were gone, so we, we we were. I was around people where I could have potentially learnt it, but there wasn't necessarily the emphasis on learning it. Um, I think, in particular, my my parents were sort of told that um, that uh, whatever language stuff they were doing with me at home was stifling my English in school, so they were put off teaching me guard too. So, so it's it's sort of interesting to to sort of see how these things play out in my life now today and in the way that I'm trying to reconnect and get a better understanding of my um my uh, ethnic heritage or my tribal heritage um however you want to say it. some people find the word tribal offensive um you know I'm 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 on the fence with that but but you can sort of see how this duality and this limbo sort of comes about with the way people um back home perceive you versus people here perceive you people uh white folks and then also people that are from that are black but from different backgrounds you know um uh, and like sometimes you can internalize this idea of black having this quintessential look or having this specific type of uh, vibe. And if you don't have that, if you're not in that mold, it's very easy to sort of feel like an outsider. Um, and on top of that, people might, you know, verbalize that to you. Like, might, you know, you might get called, I don't know, oh, you're a bounty, you're a coconut, you're this, you're that. Um, be, all because you don't live up to a type of blackness that they ascribe to, but you maybe don't resonate with it because you're not you know its origins are from a different ethnic group um or of a different time period or you you might have just have you've had like a specific experience that just is just removed from it like um like you know we have these i think people take for granted how our living spaces really affect us you know you might have a place you might have go to a place like birmingham and it's very jamaican because of the communities that sprung up there you know if you go down to 
to Bristol, Liverpool, all these sort of port cities where you might see a lot of biracial folk because of the legacy of sailors and, and things of that nature. Uh, you might come to Brixton, again, going to be a very Jamaican community. Um, Mitcham is going to be quite Ghanaian. So you have these pockets of different types of culture. And if you're birthed within it, you're going to soak it up, right? But then how does that look if you're not from the dominant or pre- or the predominant culture in that space? You're going to come off as like quite different, but you're not really given that grace in terms of, oh, he's not like this because why would he resonate with this particular thing when, you know, it doesn't it doesn't speak to his black experience? You know, it's, it's interesting, very interesting, I think. But then in terms of the individual, on the individual level, you might internalize these things and start to think, oh, okay, cool. Um, black people are expected to do X, Y, Z. I don't do that. I don't, I don't, I don't enjoy that. I don't look at that and see myself in it. So therefore maybe I'm not that black, you know? Uh, so um, I think a good example of this for me might have been, so if I, I remember a time when I, w- I went to my best friend's house, my, my best friend, uh, I call him T, uh, he, he's, he's white. Um, we've known each other since we were four years old, still my close friend to this day. Um, but I remember the first time I went around to his, his house uh, for, for like to, to, to like, you know, just to chill and to, you know, like a play date sort of kind of thing, I guess you'd call it. And when it came to dinner time, his mum had made chicken, rice and peas. So this was just a re- regular chicken, rice and peas. It wasn't, it wasn't rice and peas in the Jamaican sense. It was like literally just white rice, uh, green peas and, and sweet corn as well. And his older brother, when we're setting the table, sort of made this little joke like, oh, is this what you have at home? He probably made the joke to sort of show that he knew what black home cooking looked like. Or like this, this was his stereotype of black home cooking. But obviously, rice and peas is a Jamaican dish, so that wouldn't resonate with me. I mean, I mean there's a Ghanaian dish called wache, which is similar. Um, I don't like wache. I'll probably get my Ghanaian record revoked because of that. But yeah, I, I'm not a fan of wache. And at the time, I hadn't had it. And But I'd heard of this, you know, the stereotype that black people eat rice and peas, right? But for me, it didn't resonate. So in my head, I'm like, okay, cool. This is an expectation of black people that I don't live up to. Therefore, maybe I'm not that black. Comes to going home now. His dad's giving me a ride home. And his dad's talking to me about the type of music I might be into or might like. And he's talking about um, ska music. So ska music, uh, I believe, is a Jamaican genre, popularised in Jamaica, then then popularised here in Britain. And again, it's something that I had no idea, <laughs> no idea of. When it came to like my musical taste at the time, I didn't listen to much music at the time, um, but it was mostly based on my parents' interest. And again, because my parents were... Um, quite a bit older than me, uh, generation-wise. Like they would be my grandparents if you looked at them just age-wise. Um, but like my dad was a fan of things like Nat King Cole. My mum my liked Marvin Gaye, Michael Jackson, like that kind of music. So I was aware of like this wide variety of different types of music um, created by Black people across the world. Obviously, different types of Afri- African music as well. Like um, particularly uh, francophone music with that sort of like that very. Um, uh, obvious string arrangement that you might hear in a lot of music from Congo or um, Cote d'Ivoire, uh, that kind of that kind of very um, heavy string music. But those are the kind of things I, w- I would have been listening to. Uh, maybe some hip hop, you know, uh, like you know, here and there on 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 the TV. But like nothing. I wasn't like super duper into music to have like an in depth knowledge of any kind of genre. But the point is, he says this to me. Uh, um, Don't you know what ska music is? And he starts singing some songs and some lyrics, mentioning some artists. And again, like I'm completely bamboozled. I have no idea what he's talking about. But the way he's describing it to me, it's like this thing of where this is a seminal form of black expression and you, you should know about it. Like, I'm surprised that you don't like, like you, you sort of going on one of those, like, you know, um, like, oh, 
what do you mean you don't know? Of course, you, you must do. So bearing in mind that I'm about what? About eight years old at this time. It was just another sort of situation where I internalized this idea of not being that black. Um, so yeah, I think particularly at a young age, that's kind of how I navigated through my identity. Um, you know, it was um, this uh, thing that was quite taxing. Um, and then on top of that, as you're growing a bit older, getting into adolescence, and you're sort of really looking at how the the information you're given about black people, like it's all negative, particularly if you're a black boy. Like I remember growing up seeing what happened to Damanola Taylor, hearing about what happened to Stephen Lawrence, um, the honey trap killing, um, Anthony Walker's murder, like there's this constant info overload of this this thing of having to navigate life as a black boy, meaning that you are threatening, that you are also in danger constantly. Like, you know, just <laughs> like just, just just for existing, like these are the sort of like trappings that come with it. So I think that kind of that kind of um gave me this dire outlook on what it meant to be a black boy. And that versus being a Ghanaian and going home to Ghana and even though there is that estrangement, it's an all black country. So um, my experiences of Ghana as a as a as a youth are very very positive. I have very fond memories, partly because I was literally on holiday. I wasn't living there full time, so it wasn't I wasn't dealing with the stresses of being on the ground living in living in Ghana or living in Accra particularly. Um, obviously, because my family was Ghanaian as well, so the experience of Ghana felt like a familial experience. It felt like going home. It felt like being introduced to a wider family. And also on top of that, we had more creature comforts. This is probably a bit of an overstatement, but um, there isn't the same narrative about black people being vicious or criminal or or anything like that. So the only t only thing I can see about Ghanaian people is them being nice to me in the here and now and sort of taking that on. Actually, let me not say that. Let me rephrase. Um, because they're definitely... Those narratives exist those negative narratives around blackness certainly exist um, because of, you know, the, the history of slavery and colonialism on the continent. So I don't want to paint it as if they don't exist. Um, it's more probably they, they function differently and they don't operate in the same way in terms of um, you won't have media representing um, ideas like black on black crime in the context of a place like Ghana. Um, well, n not in that explicit way. Um because I don't want to do that thing where I see, uh, like, uh, more famous modern-day continental Africans with a platform. People like, I don't know, Chimamanda or Lupita Nyong'o when they talk about not knowing they were black until they came to the West. Uh, because I think it misrepresents um, the experience back there. And and again, not to talk over people from the continent because I, I, I live in England. But when people say that, what they're expressing with the lang and the language they're using isn't exact to what they're trying to say uh again not to speak for them but i just think that's what it is because i mean even if you look at like historically um Kwame Nkrumah during his independence speech he talks about the black man so there is this understanding of how these narratives of black people being um a sub subcategory of human um and, and even you know even like in terms of when you hear people speak about themselves sometimes back home you can see those ideas laced into their thinking like um i remember uh uh i went when i went back probably the second most recent time i went back in 2000 and 
uh, 15, I was speaking to an auntie and essentially she said that democracy doesn't work for black people. Uh, she was saying that, you know, it can work in European countries because they're white, but with black people, you have to tell them what to do. So that kind of idea of black people being built for subjugation or being lesser than and needing to be given authoritative pushes, that was something that, you know, has been embedded in her thinking, even though she lives in an all black country. So, yeah, let me rephrase what I said. Um, it's not that it doesn't, not that, it's not that, that narr those narratives don't exist. They just function differently and they don't affect you because maybe it's not as obvious as in the UK. Like, you know, when you're seeing the media push certain agendas and narratives about uh, like things like black on black crime or just black, black crime in general. And then you're going out into a world where you stick out as an oddity, as a public figure because of your blackness. Um, it's easier to reconcile with your blackness in a space like Ghana where there isn't that isn't that instance versus in England where there is that instance and that instance is every single day and sort of like therefore having this pride in being Ghanaian and you know being Ghana uh, being Ewe but the idea of being black was a bit more daunting so maybe I dissociated in terms of my uh, my experience um, and then on top of that the way that blackness in itself made me an oddity within my um my uh my my circumstances in terms of like school like you know thinking back um well one there weren't many of us like i said in school and then on top of that the interactions of i was a chubby kid i, I was I, I became chubby in like year six so around 10 11 years old um but like even so no one ever had a crush on me um when it comes to playing kiss chase you know, Kimberly and Amber were letting um, Callum and Daniel catch them. Whereas with me, they were running extra fast. Um, people would talk about my lips. Um, there were things that made me not like myself because of, uh, well, because of blackness, essentially, isn't it? So um, thinking back, like, there was this negative connotation that I had and that was, you know, reinforced through several different means. Um, and on top of that, I felt estranged from other black people sometimes because, our culture didn't our cultural experiences didn't match up our household experience didn't didn't maybe match up um and it's interesting because i think about like i didn't like i as much as i had these feelings i was still surrounded by black people like i went to church you know i went to visit my cousins um hall parties things like that but i don't know i don't think they weren't as affirming to me as they should have been maybe i don't know why um but they didn't have that reinf that positive reinforcement um uh, effect that they probably would have on a lot of other kids I, I don't know why particularly they didn't but thinking back um I, I took more from my experience being an oddity than my experience around people that look like me um and I can't really I, I don't think I don't have a reason for why that happened um but yeah like I said even I remember one time in school we were doing like self-portraits and everyone's passing around this peach felt tip talking about oh pass me the skin color felt tip pass me the skin color felt tip and obviously me being a black boy that's not the that's not what I'm thinking of when I see a peach felt tip. So again, it, it was this moment. It was interesting that like from the outside looking in for me, it was just a moment for the the white kids in the class to reaffirm themselves and they like they affirm themselves and being like like every like they they're like oh this is this is the one thing we all share in and they're passing around this felt this felt tip of the same color. Whereas for me, I felt very left out in that moment because it's like I'm an oddity. I, I'm I'm not I'm not desirable. I'm not um, like everyone else. And there were just I think there was some on top of that. There were so many instances where I was out and about with my parents and like, or just with my friends and like just negative things would happen. Like I remember 
And my dad used to take me everywhere with him. My dad would take me everywhere with him. So like when he when he's going to run errands, I'm by his side. Uh, I remember going we on a bus one time to go and see maybe an uncle. And these two drunk white guys were on the bus and, and they throw a chocolate Yazoo milkshake at me and my dad. Well, they don't throw it. They roll it down the, the bus. And then they start singing, Free Nelson Mandela. So like, for me, like from from that song, I I was it was obvious to me that it was like a racially motivated thing. So we get off the bus, you know, I think nothing of it. It's it's whatever. Um, there was a time my mum was driving me home from school. She uh gave this guy away. He rolled down his window and shouted, "Uh, thank you, you stupid African or, or you stubborn African." I don't know if he said stubborn or stupid, but again, like for no reason whatsoever, just randomly, like boom. Um. There were like just different occasions where it was very clear that like people didn't like the fact that black people were in this country. Like um, there was one time I was walking up to school. Uh, this was a bit later on though. This was when I was in secondary school, and this guy in a wheelchair is coming. Or not a wheelchair, but one of those like mobile, the, uh, mobile um chair things that old people use. He's coming down the hill, and I and I moved out the way so he can come down. And he stopped and he said, "Oh, I can tell you're one of the good ones. You've probably been raised in this country." And it's like people people felt no way saying these extremely racist or, or or at least racially motivated things to you well fuck it, yeah racist these horrible racist things to you um they felt no ways about how you felt and it, and it was it was like any given moment there was no warning uh, another time i was getting the bus with my dad and there's this old woman there and um uh she'd been waiting for the bus for some time two black girls came up and got on the bus before she did um they might have not have seen her or they just might have not have cared but like they they basically pushed in front of her to get on the bus they didn't physically push her or anything like that but they got on the bus before she did and she was waiting for some time and then she turned around to me and my dad who saw her and let her get on the bus before before us like we, we were waiting too but she was waiting before us so we let her get on first she turned around to me and my dad and was like oh you you africans have no bloody mar- manners and it's like it's like it was it was crazy to me because i'm like we didn't do you we didn't do anything to you we literally just but, it, but like i said it's just it's this thing of where people would tar you with the same brush um so like yeah so there were so many different things that were sort of making me feel away about my identity um and uh, even i had a i had a friend you know like a close friend in primary school someone that was um you know came home try, try my mom's jollof rice all that kind of stuff uh, I beat him in a foot race one time and he shouted at me, at least I'm not black. Like, so yeah, it was this really weird um, thing. And like, it was just like, yeah, it just, it didn't seem like, I think, and, and I was young as well. So I was like, this is all, this is mostly primary school. So between the age of um, five and 12 or five and 11, really. So like it was, and like as much as I didn't, maybe, maybe didn't have the language to describe these feelings or to dissect the situation, but this was what was going on for me. Um, I remember one time in primary school, we were doing a geography project and we were comparing um, different temperatures in different countries. Um, so one part of our group chose to do the UK. I, I said, okay, I want to do Ghana and I want to do Accra. And anyone that knew me in primary school, every group project we did, I would choose Ghana. It was either comic books or Ghana. That's that, that was, those are my two topics that I always chose and the people probably got sick of it. But this time I particularly remember because um, we were doing this project and when we came to present and we showed the difference between the temperatures, um, obviously Accra's a lot hotter than it is in the UK. Um, I think I smiled or nodded my head or something along that nature. 
and someone turned around to me basically and basically someone turned around to me and basically said you shouldn't be proud to be from Ghana it's just a stupid country um yeah so like there, I think there was this sort of idea that Africa was this as a continent was a homogenous mud hole uh that didn't contribute to human society um with smelly people with lazy people whatever whatever and these are the kind of things that you would, would would be projected in certain situations and you might not have noticed it at the time might have thought it was just banter or whatever whatever or just shrugged it off but thinking back that it was a particular type of xenophobia uh towards africans especially africans that showed any kind of pride in being african um so moving on to secondary school uh, i went to secondary school uh, in Banstead, a school called the Beacon. Uh, if anyone knows these areas, this is quay off ends. This is far from a lot of places. So this is now you've gone past London, you've gone past Sutton. You you're now entering towards deeper Surrey, towards Epsom. If you keep on going, you probably end up in Kent. So um, and this school was interesting because when I think about it, uh, traditionally with the UK schooling system, you have catchment areas. If it's not like a fee-paying school or a, um, a grammar school where you have to do an entrance exam, it will be people that live in the area. So you have catchment areas. People that live close by will get into this school. Um, but that really wasn't the case when I went there. And when I think back, there were people coming from Croydon, Tooting, Mitcham, um, people from people from uh, Rains Park, from Kingston maybe, from, um, where else? From Wimbledon, like, very like um and in terms of the the um, logistics of getting to the school there was one blue bus that went there so that would cost you maybe um four pounds to get a return ticket to and from sutton to um the beacon uh there was one red bus that went there the s1 which the the journey was very long because it went all over the place um and it was a very small bus as well so if after school you missed that, if after school it was too rammed, you'd have to wait another half an hour to get home. Um, there were coaches um, that uh, took you from different areas. So coaches would go to Croydon, to Sutton, to Wimbledon to drop people off back home. But it was expensive. And also as school went on, so as from, from when I got there in year seven to when I got there in year 10, the coach service was greatly depleted. It, it got smaller and smaller the number of locations they went to. I think in the final year, when I was in year 11, they went down to one coach or two coaches that served every location, whereas before there were maybe six coaches that chose that went to different locations. So, so yeah, this school was it was very strange in the way um, the the groups of different people that ended up there um, out of happenstance. So there really was a huge mix of people from different areas, but in terms of demographics, like the school was predominantly white. Um, when I first got there, the black students were predominantly West Indian and it was interesting for me because I kind of coming with the baggage I was coming with in terms of you know having a quite solitary upbringing um, and an upbringing where I had felt um, dissociated from other black people that weren't my blood family I would you know I, I, I was kind of in a space of where I wanted to subconsciously I wanted to correct that I wanted to you know build bonds with people that looked like me of my own age in my school um and obviously school would be the place that would be most easiest to do that so um so the first like sort of few weeks 
um, there was one of there was so there was one of a black student in my form group, and he was friends with a lot of the he, he was Jamaican and he was friends with a lot of the um older West Indian students in the um I actually think every single black student in the older years was Jamaican. I don't think there was anyone from any other country. Like if I think they were literally all like a um Jamaican and maybe partly from another island. But I think for the most part everyone in those in those older years was Jamaican. Um they were definitely West Indian, but I think it was almost hundred percent Jamaican. So, um, so yeah, so I, you know, I, I met him, started started talking to him. Um, we and then, and then I sort of like when he would like go and meet these people from his his area that he already knew, and he would hang out with them. I'd, I sort of tagged along, and I was sort of trying to, um, you know, fit in essentially. Um, but I kind of noticed that just the way I came off to other people, it didn't really um work out in terms of like uh just like different um sensibilities different um uh hobbies like you know I, I was a very avid comic book reader um i would say that there wasn't really an, any other black person in my school that shared that hobby it was very surprising to them that i was into comics very alien to them that i was into comics um i guess there was also like a tiny bit of a language barrier in the sense that i didn't I wasn't very familiar with a lot of slang back then. A lot of black British slang was very um, alien to me. So there were words I'm hearing for the first time. Um, but obviously it would have been a lot more familiar to them because black British slang is heavily influenced by Jamaican patois. So within their family life, they're, they're, they would have had some reference point that would have made things a lot more familiar for them. And then on top of that, I think there was also the, because like, you know, of the sort of the programming we received to view certain spaces, there was that sort of how people are influenced to see Africa as a very primitive space, uh, a space to be mocked, a space where that kind of thing. And that extends to, you know, people of African descent. So whether it comes to making fun of accents, making fun of names, um, that kind of thing. And that kind of went on a little bit. Um, there was one one of the group in the older years in particular. Um, he, he was actually biracial, but he was part of this sort of group of older um, black students. And... He would make fun of my name a lot. He would call me Poapua. And um, I remember on his final day of year 11, so I was with, I was with, I was actually, I was walking with um, uh, the other black student from my form, from my form group. So on, but on, on, on this older student's last day of year 11. So I think I was in year nine or year 10. And I'm walking along with him and uh, he, he, we, we see him and he, he starts talking to the other guy. And then he turns to me Actually, no, yeah, I was in year 10. I was in year 10. And he turns to me and he says, Pois, pois. Are, you ready? are you ready to become one of the real niggas now? Yeah. So it was interesting because like in this, he was basically saying that like, he wasn't literally saying, are you ready to become like me? But it was kind of like, he was basically, what he was saying in a, indirectly was that you don't act like a black person. He was basically dismissing my blackness um, and it's very interesting because he was biracial, and I, as far as I, I know, I don't have any admixture and any other admixture other than, um, other than from from Ghana. Um, and and it's interesting that within the context of this i this quintessential idea of what black is or how black acts, like his view would be in, like that would be endorsed at the time. Like there wouldn't have been a thing of where someone would have been like. 
nah man you shouldn't say that to me it'd be much more a thing of where yeah knees are coconut knees are this these are that so it kind of it kind of it's interesting to think back on because obviously like in terms of literal sense like he's he was he's a biracial person telling me am i ready to become a real nigger and it's all based on this idea of like our you know sensibilities or um a particular type of acting that you know that will legitimize your blackness versus a way of acting that illegitimizes it so it was just it's 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 one of those things where it's interesting to look back on in terms of like there wouldn't be anyone to take up for me in that space. At, at the, I think nowadays, if that, that conversation would be would be handled very different. Actually, I don't know. I don't know if we were if we were the same age in in a school right now. I don't know if that that, that would happen differently. But but I feel like well, in, in the context of us being adults, that conversation would happen differently now. But it's interesting to look back on, uh, considering the time and also just who was involved in the conversation, and also the fact that I'm pretty confident that a lot of people would have sort of like co-signed his um idea of things in the sense of like illeg- is it illeg- illegit- illegitimizing me as someone that could be seen as a, a black person because even there were other times i remember one time um so me and my friendship group at the school our black friendship group um we were like we weren't necessarily very rowdy or anything like that in, maybe in comparison to people that were in older years or whatever whatever but um I remember distinctly there was one white guy um, I think his name was Daniel and he came up to us when we were playing um, blackjack one time at, um, at lunchtime and he was saying oh we've got the most uncool black kids in the beacon like basically saying that like compared to the other uh, black um, black friendship groups in older years or younger years we weren't as cool as them because we weren't as rowdy or, or, or however you want to sort of describe it we didn't live up to some form of quintessential black action that they wanted from us which was again kind of weird because again yeah it was it was weird it was like being black was a performance it was more about what you did than what you physically look like which again is ridiculous but it's just when you're kids these ideas are very easily perpetuated and propagated and seen as truth um so yeah that was that was interesting uh but in general when i got to the school in year seven so i didn't really get to form form those bonds other than with my particular friendship group there are about five or six of us um so you have me a Ghanaian, uh my boy sj who's nigerian half Ibo, half yoruba my boy Daniel, who's Nigerian, also half Ibo, half Yoruba. Uh, B, who is biracial, half Jamaican, half white. And then D, who is Jamaican, but I think he has a grandmother from another island. Um, I forget which one, but but that's that's the that was the makeup of our group. And one and 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 Faze, who is um Pakistani. Um, so we had our group. We found ourselves in about year at the end of year eight, towards the start of year nine. We sort of created our group, and that was us. Um, and we were sort of like, we lived within ourselves and we just chilled with each other. Um, but there were a lot of racial things that happened in the school. Um, even from year seven, I remember there was one teacher from South Africa, a white South African teacher. He would literally, any any P session, he would do blacks v. whites. He would, I remember, I remember it vividly. He would say, okay, boys, blacks v. whites. Like he would just, that was the way he would split up people for to play in team sports. Um, and that was never that never became into question. That was never people never like this is kind of fucked up. Um, I think because maybe there was a kind of like 
desire for those kind of splits whereas because of the racial tensions in the, in the school there was a desire to to sort of have those things play out because I remember when we got to year nine there there were a lot more like fights and you could see like a very clear racial divide in terms of who was fighting who um so I think there was a part partly the students we kind of enjoyed that um dynamic of okay it's us versus you but at the same time having a teacher who has this authoritative position saying this and doing this frequently without being reprimanded at all like no sanctions no nothing like and he was there for years before I came he left the year the year after I came he left so he left at the end of year eight for me but it's just so mad that something like he he was like no one ever called him up on it I think even one time he was talking to a um uh an east asian student and he was just like hey shut up china and it's like no one did anything about <laughs> like no one did anything about this and it was calm and it was mad um but yeah so on the teaching side uh, there was all, it was always obvious to me that like we were on the back foot when it came to anything like when it came as, as black students in that school we were on the back foot there was nothing we could really do in terms of if we felt something if we thought that if we felt there was any types of racial injustice towards us there was no platform we could go to to sort of air this because even i remember um in year 10 our head of our head of our head teacher our head mistress of the school a woman named miss uh, miss thompson um so me and my my friendship group uh we're walking walking to to, to class nothing no nothing to be seen just walk into class um she stops us and says okay boys why are you all friends is it because you're all black now i wish i had the mind i had i have now back then to give her some cheek but well i, I, well, I didn't and well to be fair my, my brethren d was like oh um oh sorry to be to, she started off sorry, so she so she made it a bit more covert so she started off saying oh uh where do you guys all live why are you friends? That's the kind of line of questioning she would go to. And my boy D kind of already clocked what was going on. So he his his response was, "Oh, we like the look of each other, miss." And then she said, "Well, it does seem like you're all you're all black, so that seems to be the re-, like he, she was kind of gesturing towards that." And it was and again, it's it was so mad to me. Well, thinking back, it's mad that like I wish I had the presence of mind to say, "Well, you wouldn't ask any of the pretty much all south asian friendship groups why they're all friends you wouldn't ask any of the white friendship groups why they're all friends why is it that like you know five six black boys walking together to class is an issue like why are you why are you even mentioning why are we friends like why is anyone friends because they like each other's company so like we're in school like what what, what do you want what kind of question what, what kind of answer do you want us to give like you want to like do you want to validate your idea of what you how you see black people so it was it was so like well again i didn't have uh, I was frustrated at the time, but I didn't have the I didn't have the presence of mind that I do now. So, for me, like just actively seeing that even our headmistress had this fr- this fr- mind frame of where there was no like you could tell that her her mind frame was influenced by by um, racial hierarchies, by racism, by white, white supremacy essentially. So it was like there was no platform or place we could go to where we where we would feel that we could like actively say yeah we've been mistreated because of our race and be heard and even you know even black teachers fed into this like i remember there was one particular west indian teacher who tried this sort of tough love tactic with us but he never really 
came to bat for us when it counted. So it was kind of all air. I remember there was a South African teacher. She wasn't South African as in, she, I think she was from Zimbabwe. So she was from a Southern African nation. And I remember like, I was trying to explain how my name worked and what it represented in my in terms of culturally. And she basically came to, to, to this conversation and tried to dispel what I was saying to this white student I was explaining it to. And it's like, one, you're from a completely different nation than I am, completely different culture. And you're trying to Ill- illegitimize what I'm saying to this this white student. You're not being very helpful to me in terms of this situation right now. Like, what are you as a black elder? What are you doing in this situation? Why are you coming to essentially, you know, um, position me as a liar to the to these white kids? Like, it's not a useful thing that you're doing right now, and it's not not an accurate thing you're doing right now. So, it was just a bit mad, like in terms of. Because because the school itself, like, everyone kind of felt like they didn't have much. Like, it wasn't a, a, a well-off school. It wasn't a thing of where there were... Well, it was interesting because there were kids that were definitely well-off. Like, you know, you would see some people's parents come into schools, pick them up in a, in a Hummer with private plates. So people had money, but it wasn't a thing of where socially those people probably still identified as working class. Like, you could tell that it wasn't like a thing of middle-class snobbery. It was much more a thing of where... I don't know. I, I I can't explain the demographic of white people. It 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 was it was it was working class, but they weren't necessarily struggling. They were just just working class. So um, and you could like sort of tell from the the way a lot of the white boys in my year in particular, the sensibility they tried to carry with them, the the sort of Jack the Lad Cockney accent sort of kind of performance that they would give in terms of their um personality. You could tell they were they were trying to feed into that working class imagery. That it it was it was interesting, and and also like there were just so many actions and things that happened that you know that would they were they were just spurred by racial tension by you know and you could see it. Like I remember there were two girls in particular that had a a big big fetish for black boys, um, and they were like you know on the more curvy side the more voluptuous kind of white women they were quite tall as well and you know the, the white guys in our school weren't checking for them like they they lived in the same areas they were they they you know they went to the same parties they were friends um you know they would they would get up to shenanigans together but they the white guys in those groups in in our school in particular were not checking for these two girls in particular um and i remember there was like um the one of the girls lost her virginity to a to a black kid in 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 our school and i remember the reaction of those boys to that news it was so racially charged because it was like oh why are you like so and so she loves black boys you love black boys too like why why did you just love black boys and it was like even though they weren't checking for this girl they didn't find her attractive they probably would have called her fat at some point but the idea that she was laying with black men or giving herself to black men devalued her in the eyes of those white men and it was so interesting to see that like even within an action that had nothing to do with those white men they still were coming to to verbalize how you know how um how how it was something to be you know seen as disgusting or it was something that impacted the white community as a whole like inadvertently and obviously i don't think they were thinking this far as you know 14 year old kids but that's essentially what it was it was basically them saying 
if you give yourself to a black man in any way, shape or form, you're devalued within our community. You're, you're to be thrown away. Um, and it was interesting to watch. Um, even when my, my when my friend Daniel got to came to because he 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 was he scored in Nigeria first and then came to our school in year ten, and he was physically he Daniel was um, very tall and quite muscular. Um, there was another kid who had been there from year um, from year seven the 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 Jamaican um, guy in my form group who was again similar tall and muscular. You could tell that those white boys didn't particularly like him, but there was a fear factor there. So there was a pretense of, oh, yeah, he's all right. Because they knew they couldn't deal with him. If it came to a physical altercation, they knew they couldn't deal with him. With Daniel, on the other hand, I think because he was African, because he had a bit of an accent, um, they would try and see if they could test him. Like it was interesting. It was interesting to with, with 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 the guy in my phone group. They wouldn't do that. They wouldn't try to test him because they already had an understanding of no, we can't deal with him. But with Daniel, they would constantly try to. They would constantly try to jump him. Always try and goad him into a fight. Make fun of his accent. They was always trying to get onto him, and it was crazy because, for me, I'm like, the only real the only real difference is that you know uh, the guy in my phone group would have seemed a lot more British to those boys, versus Daniel who would have seemed a lot more. Africa. They would have called him a fresh. They would have called him freshy, um, and Af whatever they would. So, the difference in the way they treated them, it was so interesting. And it's like, like I didn't think about the implications in terms of why there was this different treatment based on um, where someone came from versus where someone else came from. But, but these things, thinking back, they definitely played into the situation. Um, and even like. It was just, it was a very shitty situation because as much as the, it was, it was predominantly white, there wasn't many of us there, but there was enough of us to be there for like a small, to have a small knit community, but, but we still didn't necessarily have the tightest knit community in terms of the black students at the school, um, well, at least in my year. So, so I survived my time at secondary school, um, despite, you know, the teachers and administration clearly being very racially biased the students being very well very racist even another time that stood out to me was when when the london riots happened the racist jokes that i saw flooding facebook like it was crazy like the white kids they really let off like when when the london riots happened the, the on facebook the the racist jokes were they were the white kids were it's like they were waiting for the, that day like they they had a backlog and they couldn't wait to get off their racist jokes so so yeah this yeah, yeah secondary school was pretty shitty um but i finished secondary school and then i went to sixth form and as if things couldn't get any worse i've gone from a very very predominantly white um school to an even more predominantly white school the school was a lot smaller um, the school was called Yule Castle. It was um, the the physical building itself used to be King Henry VIII's hunting cabin, and it was it's a private school in Yule. Yule is a small town in between um, Epsom and Cheam. And I was there for three years. Um, I failed my first year of A levels, um, and I was there for three years. Um, and I was the and the, the six again. This was a very small school. It was a very small private school. Um, like you could have a class of four people or five people, depending on which subject you were doing in sixth form. So, um, it's a very different experience, but it was even more isolating for me because I was literally the only black student in the sixth form. 
um, for the for the first week, I was the only black student in sixth form. Then there was another black student. Then when I failed my first year, I went into the lower year. Um, so then, so then after that year, I went back to being the only black student. So there was literally, so it was literally one or two of us at a time. There were black students in the younger years, but in terms of in sixth form, it was it was very very isolating. And there were so many weird things that happened and th- weird things that were said. Um, again, I had the same sort of situation as people trying to illegitimize my blackness. But again, this time it was mostly white people. And it was like, basically, you don't act the way that we expect a black person to act. Therefore, you're not black. Um, and it went to, so, as far to the extent of where one guy said to me, um, I reckon you've got a pretty small penis for a black person. Basically, and again, that stemmed from the idea of because you don't act like how I expect a black person to stereotypically act, I bet then the stereotypes about your anatomy are also different from other black people in terms of the belief of, you know, stereotypes, the Mandingo stereotype. So, and and it was, this came out of the blue. This is someone that has never seen me naked, never, like, never, it's never, it's not a thing of where he has any kind of impetus to make this statement. He just says it because um he sees me as a, a coconut or whatever in, in his definition, in his idea of what blackness looks like or how blackness acts. And, yeah, it was just there was nowhere for me to hide or assimilate or anything like that. It was very much, I, I stuck out because there were literally two of us or just me. At one, at, it was mostly just me or it was just the two of us. So, and once again, I was in a situation where I knew there was no platform of of, of, of authority I could go to when it came to any sort of racial inst- instance. Like I remember one time I was literally helping someone carry a bench uh, from one place to another He'd asked me to help him. So I said, okay, cool. I'll help you carry this bench. I'm carrying this bench, but we're about to enter this the place where we're about to put the bench down. And he says, oh, you're such a, you're such an N-word. And like hard R. For no reason, out of the blue, completely random. Like this, this just, this, this, um, you know, it was like, for me, I think it, the way I kind of explained it was that this middle-class white boy has not been an opportunity, has not had the opportunity to, look upon a black person they don't see as a threat and then and then exert that sort of power so with me the way he perceived me as being non-threatening it's like i can get i can finally get away with it i can finally do it so he jumped at the chance and for me i was like okay cool if i beat this boy up i'm putting in jeopardy the what, the twelve thousand or how thirteen thousand pound my parents scraped like scraped to put me into this school like and and there's no one in the upper echelon of of the of the teaching class there's no black there's no black teachers in this school there's no one i could even try and attempt to explain why this i ended up beating this person up so i was just like you know what cool i'm just gonna do my time here and i'm gonna cut and forget it ever happened so i got through that stage of life um out of that sort of weird little um time in (laughs) amongst middle class uh white folk uh and i went to uni went to the University of Kent, spent my first year on the Medway campus and my second year on the Canterbury campus. Or I was studying the whole time in the Canterbury campus, but because I got in through clearing, um, my accommodation was in the Medway campus in the first year. Um, And I kind of went into university with a closed mindset in the sense that I kind of looked back on my social life and sort of thought that, hmm, you know, I've lived a lot in white space, white, well, predominantly white spaces, and I've been, felt like an oddity, felt undesirable, felt insecure. And then 
I've been amongst my own people them and not necessarily felt as comfortable as I would have liked to have felt. So I kind of felt really nomadic. Um, so I was like, hmm, I'm just going to know. I'm just going to go to uni, get my degree and that's it. That's me. That's me done. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't the most social person. I think a lot of people actually told me, um, uh, people that I got to know better in the later years of uni told me my, in my first year that I seemed very unapproachable um, and quite stush and X, Y, Z. Um, which is funny because I'm I'm not really those things. I'm I'm, I'm I might have been a bit distant, but I'm, I'm I'm very mellow and like um, non-confrontational. So it's interesting to hear that. It was interesting to hear that perspective from people that got to know me a bit later. Um, but within that first year, I still I guess ended up finding myself in like a bubble of a particular set of friends. And one of those people in particular was this Lebanese girl who I kind of ended up in a situationship with, I guess. Well, yeah, it, it it didn't really end well. Not not that it ended explosively or anything like that, but it was just a very sort of like one side uses the other side sort of to get what they want, but don't really reciprocate the same energy. So anyway, I was in that sort of situation. Uh, it doesn't pan out. I come out of that situation and I sort of look back on it and I'm like, hmm, why was I so infatuated with this girl? Like, what was it about her that made me, you know, turn into a dickhead essentially? Because I look back, you know, there were times where she clearly showed a lack of respect for black people in general, uh, or a lack of respect for me. Not And not to say that I didn't call her out in those moments, but when I got away from it, I kind of realised that if I really respected myself, I wouldn't have put myself in that situation. So then when I look back on it, I was like, hmm, I was, you know, from the first time I saw her, I was pretty much, you know, interested. Uh, she was an attractive girl, fair enough. So that made sense. But then I was like, why was it this entire year? Well, not, obviously, like, first year's not actually the entire year. So from September to uh, uh, July. So I'm thinking, hmm, what is it about this girl that just made my dickhead dickheadometer go through the roof? Like, what? why was I so willing to allow certain things to slide and and not taking them as red flags and just deaden, deaden off my uh, interest or my pursuits? So on the one element was her sort of like, you know, giving me like false hope. But then on the other hand, on my side, I'm looking at it and I'm like, okay, let me dissect what this girl is uh, in terms of her visual. She's racially ambiguous. And given your background and how you felt about yourself for a long time in terms of desirability, um, like maybe you've internalized this idea that having a certain type of woman by your side will elevate you and therefore make you feel better, make you feel like more comfortable within society. And I was like, hmm, how do I put her on a pedestal because of like, you know, what she looked like, uh, you know, what she represented, you know. Um, I do feel like, there, you know, there are some, some, you know, some man them that, you know, go crazy for girls just, be just because they're, they look mixed or they're ethnically ambiguous, um, just because like it's this uh, unconscious internal thing of where, I will be elevated by having her on my arm. Um, so yeah, I had to check myself. Um, and I made, you know, and from that point on, I wasn't really open to interracial dating, I guess. Um, and this also opened me up a bit more to the disrespect that black folk might be getting behind closed doors from non-white ethnic groups. You know, I mean, I'd kind of been privy to that in the sense of some of my dealings with, with, um, with South Asian individuals. Um, but at the same time, I, I kind of never really thought about 
what non-whites thought of black people was only really about what white people thought about black people that I kind of had in my in my mind as like a as the token of racism or racial um, hierarchy or whatever whatever um so that that happened in the first year and then in the second year and third year I was able to actually pick my own modules so a lot of the modules were like titled around uh colonialism and post-colonialism um different critical thinkers uh, and those were the modules I chose uh, um, uh, uh, Black America and the Black American Liberation Movements. Um, so I was reading things like Franz Fanon, Wretched of the Earth, A Grain of Wheat by um, Ngugiwa Thiongo, Things Fall Apart by Chinua Achebe, um, The Beautiful Ones Are Not Yet Born by Ai Kwe Armour, um, uh, a lot of Baldwin, Zora Lee Hurston, W.B. The Boys. Uh, well, uh, uh, Kwame Nkrumah, like, so I kind of got a wider scope of what black meant or what it meant to be black in particular historical time periods and to particular geographical locations, the idea of blackness as a racial idea, but also as a cultural idea and then also as a political idea. So on top of that, on the academic side, on the social side, I actually became um, good friends with people actually from the continent. Uh, my two closest friends are um, from Kenya and Uganda, respectively. Uh, he, and one of them is a, he's Rwandese, but he, he's a Ugandan national. Um, so, yeah, I was really opened up to a wider variety of, of, um, of blackness, uh, its meaning and different individuals, uh, both through an academic lens and a social lens. So, yeah, my, my just like my thinking, it got a lot more widened and... I guess my friends would say that I became a bit more militant. Um, I wouldn't really say so. I just think I became a bit more aware of myself and aware of the histories that have sort of allowed me to exist. Like the fact that I exist as a black Brit is down to the fact of all these things happening in history, you know. If the UK never colonises Ghana, my dad never grows up learning about England wanting to come here and I'm never born here. So, you know, all these things, my very existence is trapped within this idea of history Um culture resistance um all these different things and aspects of my being have, have have culminated um through this history and the fact that i didn't really have a deeper understanding of it until that point at you know 20 21 years old you know i was kind of embarrassed um but at the same time i feel like you know it's almost intentional there's a there's a desire to separate you from the idea of uh what liberation looks like or the previous forms of liberation or like how we've got to a particular situation that we're in now. Like even if you look at the the, the history curriculum at schools, there are things that you know have shaped British um, um, culture and British lives that we don't really look at in 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 the same way that in, in, well, with a, with an eye to see how they caused those changes. Right? It's more a thing of where we're looking at them for the sake of knowing them, but we're not necessarily looking at them for the sake of understanding how they've shaped our reality today. So again, yeah. So coming out of that i just you know i have this mindset of where i just want to take on more knowledge take on uh you know more ideas and see more um um more how how different identity struggles have um you know resulted in 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 the situations we have today um so that's why i'm kind of making this podcast to be honest to sort of continue that um that journey um i don't want it just to be me reading books i mean as much as i like reading books uh, having conversations is much more interesting you know um critical um theory is is all well and good and you know fiction is all well and good but also the anecdotal evidence the you know that that's kind of what i want to get at in 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 um in these talks so 
So, yeah, um, going forward, if anyone wants to jump on and speak to me about their black experience, um, please let me know. Uh, my Twitter is at tweeted, so N-double-I-T-W-E-E-T-E-D. Um, and, yeah, we can, you know, we can, you know, have a, hopefully what will be a great constructive conversation. Um, I'm going to leave it there. Talking about myself for this long has made me feel uncomfortable. <laughs> um, and I hope that you know i've given a decent picture of who i am and where i've come from um and i hope that people will want to come back and listen to me dribble on a bit more um so yeah i guess um with that i'll sign out that's the first episode done um hope to hear from people um i think i particularly want to hear from uh west indian elders and members black members of the lgbtq plus um, community uh, because that's uh, I think those are probably the, the, the two areas that I'm most disconnected from um, because I'm, I'm a cishet straight man um, and I'm of African descent so I think those those are probably the two um, spheres that I'm at most most at most out of the loop with so if people from that background would reach out to me I'd be really grateful to actually be able to have conversations about your experiences and how it's molded you and uh, so yeah um, peace I will see you in my next episode.